Hello, hello to peace lovers, peacemakers. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this episode and this video, we are talking with Professor Kate Clancy, author of Period, The Real Story of Menstruation. Professor Kate teaches at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where she holds appointments in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. She focuses on reproductive health, as well as research and policy advocacy on sexual harassment in science and academia. Professor Kate has written for National Geographic, Scientific American, and American Scientists periodicals. She also manages Period Pod, a podcast focused on menstruation and all the relative subjects on this matter. In Period, the book itself, Professor Kate explains the science behind menstruation. She tells us what happens to a woman's body when she gets through a monthly period and why we should care. I am super excited about the conversation because I think this is um, a subject that really needs to be discussed more often. I am super excited to bring Professor Kate into our studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. So the tradition of this show is to go with the first name. And with your permission, I'm going to go with Kate. And Kate, please, um, if I may, you, you do explain, in, especially in the beginning of the book, that what happened and why you became interested in writing this book. But I would like to see what was the first spark. The first spark for this book I think in many ways came from my editor reaching out to me. Um, I had been writing for Scientific American for some time um, and just blogging generally for a while back when, back when blogs were a thing, people don't really blog as much anymore, I suppose, but there was this whole community of science communicators, educators, writers, journalists, um, people who really cared about and reveled in and enjoyed writing science um, and especially doing it in a way that crossed all sorts of different groups and constituencies, reached out to kids, adults, patients. And, um, you know, I, I loved being part of that community. I loved doing that writing. So when Allison Kalet, who was the, um, who is an editor at Princeton University Press, reached out to me and asked, you know, if I'd thought about writing a book, um, the answer was absolutely no at the time. Um, but over several years, going through the tenure process, um, starting to think about having another kid, just sort of continuing to progress through my life, I realized that a book about periods is what I really wanted to do. And that in particular, I thought really trying to offer like a feminist and social justice approach to the science could be something that we hadn't seen before. Social justice? So um, really trying to understand that our different lived experiences the history of the science and the history of the medicine that we interact with, that all of that has repercussions for how we experience our bodies and how we are treated in medical contexts. Yes. And you are saying this is the real story of period. How come real story? Well, I mean, the maybe little known fact for people who aren't authors is that you don't necessarily choose your title. <laughs> so uh, Real Story wasn't even my first choice. I had all sorts of obnoxiously literary, nerdy, scientific, and sometimes like. very... Uh, so um, one of the ones I really liked was Built for Choice. Another was Lifeblood. 
Um, but then I had a lot of puns. Um, I wanted riding the crimson wave or bleedy pants was my favorite. Um, yeah. You know, like I had a lot of other ideas. The reason that I'm really glad though, that my publisher um, and that Allison and many others at the press are actually very good at reining me in is that in a lot of ways, the real story is what I was trying to share. I was trying to say, let's look at this through the lens of history, through the lens of social science, and see what we can uncover of what the science is really telling us when we move all of the assumptions to this, you know, off to the side. Um, and, and really, that's what I was hoping the book would do. Mm -hmm. So um, I would like to know, did you yourself had a difficult periods? Not particularly. I mean, they're on the heavier side. So a lot of the um, reusable options that exist out there just really don't work for me. Um, and reusable as, options, what do you mean? Um, menstrual cups, menstrual underwear. Um, most of those just like, I just, I bleed right through them um, or leak everywhere. Or uh, it, it's, you know, so the one thing is I, I'm on the, I'm within the, the norm, but on the heavier end. Mm -hmm. um, and then I certainly had very painful periods early. Um, like many people, like adolescence is unfortunately a time when periods can be painful. That doesn't mean it's like that for forever, but you know, a good, the first 10 years or so of the period experience is painful for a lot of folks. I'm the same. I'm like to have a very heavy, heavy bleedings each time. And uh, I became anemic and I associated anemia with an iron deficiency with period. And I learned that that's actually not necessarily necessarily related. Well, I mean, in your case, it certainly could be, right? I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. And I, but I, what I think it's important to recognize is within the range of normal, then heavier bleeding is not associated with anemia. And that's something that seems to be supported by a couple different lines of evidence. But some people have really heavy periods that falls outside the norm. And in those cases, absolutely, there's a connection. You can't, there can't not be because you're losing so much blood. And especially if you have other things that might also increase the risk of anemia, like high physical activity, um, especially something like running. Um, running kills a lot of red blood cells from the impact of your feet on the ground. Um, so certain other things alongside it can potentially increase that risk. What would you like men to know about women's period cycle and women's cycle? Um, well, what would I like people who don't menstruate to know about people who do menstruate? I think a couple of different things. One is, I just think that they should know about it because we all should know about how bodies work. Um, I just think that there's, this is my bias, right? I'm someone who, I'm a biological anthropologist, which means I study the human body from an evolutionary and social perspective. And, uh, and to me, one of the most delightful things we can ever know about is ourselves. Maybe I'm just very navel gazing or uterus gazing, but, um, to me, that's the coolest thing we could ever do. And wouldn't you want to understand how some of the people that you most love in the world experience the world, right? And so to me, I think that's the most compelling thing is I deeply want to understand how my my children experience the world, how my partner experiences the world. And any ways in which their life lived experience is different from mine, I want to understand it because I love them. So to me, that's a good enough reason. 
You also tell us that not women are not necessarily the only species who menstruate. How come do do men menstruate? Tra- I mean, trans men do. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Tell me. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, my my son menstruates. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you can be transgender, you can be non-binary and you can menstruate. So this is not, um, you know, uh, menstruation is not like linked up biologically with gender. Not really anything is linked up biologically with gender. We just do see some general associations. So you are, we keep mentioning in the book about, um, so how uh, men's research and uh, interpretations influence the whole science behind period and menstruation. Can you tell me more? Gen- this is, this is a generalization. So I, you know, that's with that caveat, but what I observe is that a lot of times you see um, in historically, at least men conducting science around these various research areas. Um, the concern tends to be a lot more with understanding it in the context of fertility than understanding any of the other things that might be relevant to that given phenomenon. So when it comes to the menstrual cycle, sure, understanding the menstrual cycle in the context of fertility is pretty important. I wouldn't say it's not. However, the menstrual cycle does so many other things. You know, there's there's changes in libido, there's changes in mood. Um, the, the hormones that are excreted by the ovaries, they don't just like hang out just in the uterus, they go everywhere. They affect target tissues all over our bodies. Um, and then of course, there's the variable experiences of menses itself and various pathological conditions. And the fact that these pathological conditions like endometriosis, fibroids, and more, these aren't just about whether or not they affect a person's fertility. They also greatly affect quality of life. They can cause incredible pain, bloating, gastrointestinal distress, um, so many other symptoms, um, and end up being associated with so many other diseases as a result too. And so it's interesting to me that, again, the, the focus is always, well, how does this affect this person's ability to get babies? Instead of all of the other things we could ask about in terms of, well, how does this affect a person's quality of life? And for writing this book, you you do mention lab, you do mention many research and the people that are working with you. Uh, what really fascinated me was your approach of writing the book. The tone of the book is both personal and also research-based and also according to what you've experienced as a scientist. Tell me, tell me how, in what way you decided to write the book, not only for academia, but for the public. I think in a lot of ways, when I first started writing the book, I wasn't sure where I wanted the tone to be and what audience I was addressing. And I think that's why early drafts, uh, I wrote so many revisions of this book is that um, How I many know, revisions? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, it went through peer review twice, um, and it went so it went through at least three versions for that. Then another edit, another major edit, and then copy edit. So at least four, you know, at least four versions of this book <laughs> before even copy edits, um, as well as lots of other you know smaller edits along the way. And I think you know part of I there was a struggle in my mind. And a struggle in some ways, to be honest with my peer reviewers. My peer reviewers were fellow scientists who wanted me to write a lot of technical scientific stuff. And I think in a lot of ways, I felt stuck between wanting to um, 
right for my scholarly audience, my colleagues, and especially because they were the ones peer reviewing my book and had opinions about how I was supposed to be doing it, um, compared to where I where my heart kind of was, which was writing to my sister and writing to my friends and my roller derby teammates. And so that was where, um, that's part of the reason it took so long because I think I kind of had to grow confidence in my ability to try to write um, more for, again, my friends and teammates than just satisfying colleagues who wanted, you know, a hundred extra citations, a hundred more specifics about science um, and where, which is not really where I wanted to take the book. How long did it take uh, for you to write the book? Um, the book deal was signed in summer of 2018 and I submitted the final, final version in the end of the summer, 2022. Okay. So wow. Four full years, which uh, I'm writing another book right now, and I am hoping it does not take nearly that long. I mean, you never know. Um, I hope it doesn't take that long this time. Um, but you know, I had a baby. I had there was a pandemic, um, and and again, to be fair, I was also personally sort of in a uh, a crisis of where do I where do I want to direct this book to? Who mm -hmm. am whom am I writing? Uh, what is your new book about? Um, it's about pregnancy loss, um, miscarriage, abortion, basically all the ways that we lose babies and, and fetuses and, uh, and really what the science is showing us around that. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be for scholars or for public or for both? The public. Well, or really, or like, what is the public, right? But I mean, my hope is that it's a book for everybody. That's mm -hmm. um, not that it will serve everybody, not that it will make everybody happy because it's a very feminist book focused on reproductive autonomy. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's the book that I dreamed of writing similar to period. It was, it's sort of wow. my dream of a book and I hope that it will find the right readers that way. Awesome. Um, what is your critique for this current book period? For period? Um, that I get way too, you know, there's definitely times I get too in the weeds with the scientific technicality, you know, um, for two reasons. One, again, I was nervous about my colleagues and afraid they would judge me if I wasn't scientific enough. And I let that fear affect some of my writing. So there's a couple of passages, you know, I look back on where I go, oh, you didn't have to tell that. You didn't have to share those three paper, those three extra papers. You know, you could have told a story instead <laughs> and gotten the same point across. So I have a few of those moments. Um, Yeah, I think that's the main thing. I mean, there's always little things that you think you could do better, but um, I think what I'm really proud of is the arc of the book, you know, that I work so hard to establish the historical and cultural context early, that the whole middle is on the science, and then the science fiction and futurism that I do at the end was really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that and really also just really grateful to my editor and my press that they were willing to let a scientist write that type of book when I think, you know, the, the, the desire probably um, usually for someone like me writing a book like this is not to do all that extra stuff that I did. I loved the book in many different ways. Uh, number one, it's, uh, you know, personal I can relate to the book. It explains history, explains science, explains uh, the things that I can explain to my daughter, and and also everything about the book. I mean, I loved the 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 if I yeah the um, 
cover and then the shape everything so i think it's it's a very readable book but i also agree with you that it's a bit um, scientific in some ways and uh, but but nevertheless it's it's a it's a good book to read please stay put with me you are watching and listening to peace mindedly a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers for this hour i'm talking with kate clancy the author of period the real story behind menstruation this is a, a scientific book that is easy to go through and if you are would love to know about uh, uh, your loved ones, women in your life, or about your own body if you are a woman. That's uh, a book to be read and to be discussed. So I believe perhaps my um, next question and before we go for the closing is, is there anything you would like to add to this conversation or what is your closing thoughts about the book? I think... um... My closing thought is that what I wish for this book is that it's an entry point for us to think more about bodies in space and bodies in public. So menstrual justice, you know, reducing menstrual stigma, allowing people who have variable experiences of menstruation um, to exist safely and healthfully and get the care that they need. All of that is really important. And what I hope it does is helps people start to think about, well, what are other ways that we limit people's involvement in the world, you know, through bodies? Disability justice is a, is a really big framing that I try to use, at least for that last chapter. And um, I think that it's incredibly important. You know, we are in a pandemic right now, and we're pretending like we're not. Um, I... There are so many people who don't feel safe going out in public anymore because they're immune compromised. They're caregivers for immune compromised people. Um, you know, I, I haven't been able to get another booster because I'm apparently not sick enough <laughs> to qualify for getting an additional booster. Um, but I also know that since I haven't had a booster since like most of us, if people got the booster at all, I don't have any antibodies to COVID right now. So it is not safe to go into indoor spaces without a mask. So what does it say about the world that we make it so hard for people who wanna stay safe or wanna keep loved ones safe, that we make it so hard for them to exist in the world? Because when you're the only person masking and there's a hundred other people in a poorly ventilated space, you're not that protected, right? And what does it mean that so many people who purport to have a liberal politics that says that they care about other people and they are not making those choices or those sacrifices to mask right now. And so for me, menstrual justice is the beginning. It's about beginning to say all bodies, everybody deserves to exist in public, deserves to be able to go to work, to school, the library, a concert. You know, there are ways in which existing out in public has been limited to a lot of people, for a lot of people. And we all deserve in some way to be in community with others. And I would like to see us make, especially those of us who claim a more liberal mindset, be making more efforts around that. 
Yes, Kate, uh, that's excellent, amazing. Uh, although I really wanted to be this a uh, closing thought, but there is one particular question I want to ask, and we go to the last portion of our program, and that is, um, I sometimes ask stu stupid questions, but I ask it anyway because I really want response. So I, I believe, at least my opinion, not my opinion, this has been imposed on me as an opinion that period is a private matter and needs to stay private matter. And when I was uh, reading this, I was thinking about, okay, so although this is a private matter, I'm so glad we are talking about this because at least, yeah, I'm so, I don't go to details, but so glad that, uh, we are talking about this. But wouldn't we say that, let's say, for instance, erection for men are also very private matter and we are not talking about that and we are talking about this. As I was reading the book, I was really, was a, uh, interested to see how you uh, compare this to or what is your thoughts about that i guess i think it might be worth us trying to distinguish between the words private and the words intimate because you know i think like do i think we should all just be free bleeding and like showing each other our pads out in the world you know like and just sort of like no i i don't think we should be doing that I don't think we should be doing that when we defecate or urinate either. Like, you know, um, I don't think when we have a wound that we have to be showing it to people. Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't, I don't think that that is how you overcome stigma is by shoving it in people's faces if they don't want it. Um, and I don't think that actually reduces how they feel about it or changes how they feel about it. But if we understand that there are processes that cannot be controlled that exist in our bodies. Sometimes they are intimate, sometimes they are private, sometimes not. Maybe we'll be able to be more forgiving of them happening in public. Cause you know, you use the example of erections. Um, you know, there are times that people with penises experience erections out in public by accident and it's deeply embarrassing, right? Shameful even, you know, that that is a real, that that is something that is incredibly embarrassing. Similarly, when a person bleeds in public, you know, they, they leak by accident and then they have blood on their pants or something. It's happened to me many times. It's frustrating. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. But if we just treated it as like, oops, you know, like, like, I think it's possible for us to say, oh, that's not for here without saying you're a bad person because they showed up that showed up here. Do you know beautiful. what I mean? Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That's very well put. Thank you so much. You are listening and watching to Peace Mindedly. You know, the um, tradition of our program is we usually ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace, kindness, and compassion. I have already warned Kate uh, about half an hour ago that we are going to do this. And I hope that I'm not putting her on spot. But here you go, Kate. What is your message about peace, kindness, and compassion? You know, I, I've been thinking about this <laughs> since you messaged me about it. And, you know, I, I struggled to, to think of any particular story. Instead, what came to mind for me is that, um, at least for me personally, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of my research um, is really vulnerable, both for the participants I speak to, as well as the researchers themselves. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned in the beginning of the book that I also, I've been working on sexual harassment in the sciences for about 10 years. That's another major area of research for our lab. 
you know, when I talk to people about their experiences of harassment, assault, or rape, I'm hearing about some of the worst moments they've ever experienced or the moments that have made them feel like maybe they don't belong in science. When I've talked to people about COVID vaccines and menstrual changes, I've talked to them at an incredibly medically vulnerable time where they think that they are dying, <laughs> that something is happening that's wrong with them. And so when I think about peace, I just think about like, what does it look like to just remind ourselves? There's nothing special about this. Lots of people say this, but remind ourselves that the people that we engage with every day, that we don't know what they're going through and they could be having the worst day of their lives the day you interact with them. Um, I would not say that I am great about following this, but that a lot of my research reminds me at how many moments in our lives we're incredibly vulnerable and alone and that maybe we could make more efforts to actually reach out to people in those moments. We talked with Kate Clancy, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Period is the book, The Real Story of Menstruation. And you can find the book on Princeton University Press, on Amazon bookstores, and it's widely available. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been, it's been an honor to speaking with you. Thank you. Those were lovely questions. Thank you for that.